We are excited, as you can tell, right? We're pulling out all the stops to kick out off our first week of road tripping. Now, show of hands if you like a good road trip. Show of hands if you like a good road trip. All right, my kind of people. I had never flown on a plane until my sophomore year in high school. My family, we were balling on a budget, and so we did a lot of road trips, and we camped a lot. Up until high school, we camped in tents. That's just what we did, and, and I loved it. I loved all the different road trips that we went on, and they started early for us as a kid and, and our family. And my mom uh, was, well, she was just ghetto. Anyone kind of have a, like a bit of a hood mom, like a mom who just was different, thought outside the box to provide you with some different experience? Well, my mom was a little bit, of, had some of that in her, and we grew up in the, the heart of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so my mom would take all of us kids to the laundromat. And she would actually go as far as putting one of those butcher knives in the laundry basket just for, like, protection. This is kind of how my mom would roll. Like, yeah, she'd cut somebody. And uh, <laughs> if we behaved, if we behaved, we earned a trip on the bus. And back then, you could get on the city bus for, like, 10 cents. And my mom would take me and my two siblings, and we would load the city bus and we would just ride around the city, and we loved it. And my mom would let us talk to anyone and everyone. Whether you were a businessman or a homeless man, it did not matter. We loved taking these little road trips that we thought were elaborate around the city as kids. And then over time, we, we, we actually got outside the city and went and seen some things, right? I remember when my, my parents finally decided, hey, we're gonna take this up a level. And they bought a pop-up camper, Remember the pop-up campers? Yeah, ours was raggedy. Like when we bought it, it had some duct tape on it. And uh, I remember our first trip, we're driving down the road. We're in the middle of Nebraska. And we're heading out uh, west, and we are driving in the middle of nowhere. And suddenly, my dad yells out, you know, look behind us. And the top of the pop-up camper flew off, like detached itself. And it was like flying around like a saucer in the air. And so we had to pull over, and my brother, my dad, and I had to climb out into this cornfield, all to find the top of our pop-up camper, and bring it back, and dad slapped some more duct tape on it, and uh, we went our way. And I think about that, because when we get together now as a family, yeah, we talk about all the memories we had at the destinations. Like, the Redwood Forest was, was amazing, to stand next to trees that looked like they're a part of a different planet that are bigger than your car, bigger than your house. In fact, you drive through them. The destination was amazing. But the journey arguably came with more memories. And I think the same is true in your relationship with God. Eventually, we all arrive at the most amazing destination. We all step into eternity, and it is, it is fabulous. But I get this sense, I have this feeling, that when we get into eternity and we arrive at that destination, much of eternity is going to be us laughing and celebrating and sharing all the memories that we experienced on our journey. Listen, if you're not a Christian, just know that there is a journey you can experience with Christ that is unlike anything else the world has to offer. And we unapologetically, we preach Jesus and we preach the word of God and we do whatever we can to introduce anyone and everyone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, amen? That is why we exist as a church. Yet tragically, we've, we've kind of reduced this church thing 
down to a weekly lecture where many people just show up looking for advice. And guys, I'm telling you, Jesus came offering far more than just advice. He came promising an adventure. Do not settle for just advice and leave an adventure on the table. Scripture says our God goes before us and he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. There's no question in my mind our God goes before us, but my question is, will we go after him? As followers of Christ, the word implies that we follow, we move, and whoever you are and wherever you find yourself on your journey with Christ, my challenge is, what would it look like if you just kept moving, kept pursuing God's will and his plan for your life? That's the idea of this series, Road Tripping. And there's a principle I want to put before you as we jump into that, and that is this. We won't change the world by going to church. We will change the world by being the church. Listen, like attending church doesn't make you a Christian. The same way sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car. Like you have to actually participate in what God is putting before us and his redemptive work in humanity. And I'm convinced that a church is best measured by its sending capacity, not its seating capacity. And so the challenge for every single one of us is to get outside our comfort zone and to embark on a journey with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You know, we recently went to uh, the Grand Canyon for spring break. In fact, most of the Westfield campus also went to uh, you know, the Grand Canyon for spring break, we, we ran into a bunch of them. I think we're gonna have to send Pastor Todd uh, to the Grand Canyon next year during spring break because half of their campus was out there. We ran into tons of people uh, while we were out there. And the, one of my favorite things about the Grand Canyon was there's a hotel called the El Tavor. And it's this amazing building that has all this great history to it. And my favorite thing about the, the hotel was the, how it was built and that it was built where no room in the entire hotel has a clear view at the canyon. The architect purposely put the building at a slant that no one could see the canyon from their room. And his whole idea was, I do not wanna build a hotel where people come and they get comfortable and before you know it, they just hang out indoors and they eat nice food and they don't go outside to see it for themselves. My challenge for some of you is don't reduce your relationship with Christ to a gathering once a week, but go outside and see all that God has in store and how God would use you in his redemptive work in the world, amen? Jesus was, he was always on the move. I think Jesus kind of had some ADD. He couldn't just sit still. After he would do one thing, he was on to the next thing. And in John chapter four, we find Jesus once again on a journey and his disciples are in tow and his disciples learn a pretty valuable lesson and they gain an understanding on a concept that you find throughout scripture that my prayer today is every single one of us would gain an understanding of this concept. And it comes to us in John chapter four, starting in verse three, it says, Jesus left Judea and departed for Galilee. And check out this next statement, and he had to. Someone say he had to. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph, which for those of you who have good church attendance, you will remember just about a few weeks ago, I actually preached on a passage where Jacob gave a plot of land to his son Joseph. What's amazing is all the sons inherited equal portions, but Jacob gives Joseph an additional lot of land. There's a lot of land that he himself purchased. And so he gives it to Joseph. And I love this because Jesus shows up in a place known as a piece of land that a father brought and gave it to his son. And as if he shows up saying, hey, yeah, so that kind of thing. This is a whole piece of land that belongs to my father and I'm, I'm seeking to do something as the son here in this space. It's always a shadow when you read the Old Testament. So it goes on to say, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour, which was about noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? The woman of, Samaritan, of, of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And guys, right off the bat as we jump into this, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the context. I mean, there is a loaded kind of context, and the context is a conflict. See, in that day when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, some might immediately push back and say, no, he didn't. There was two paths from where Jesus was at to Galilee. There was the path that ran through Samaria, and then there was the popular path, the path that every single Jew would have taken. There was a path that was made for the Jews so they didn't have to go through Samaria. So they wouldn't be defiled and they didn't have to associate and they didn't have to interact with such ungodly and defiled people. That was their, their frame of mind. And when it came to the rabbis of the day, the religious elite and the righteous, they without a doubt would not have gone through Samaria. They would have gone around it. So when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, that would have caused some confusion. In fact, it even causes some confusion for the woman who meets him at the well. And she says to him, like, how is it that you are interacting with me? How can you even ask me for a drink of water? I mean, this interaction was taboo for three different reasons. One, it was taboo because you had a Jew interacting with a Samarian. Samaritan, that didn't happen. In addition to that, you had a man interacting with a woman, and that just didn't happen. That wasn't acceptable in that day as well. But beyond that, what we're gonna find in this passage is this woman had a pretty checkered past, a pretty promiscuous past, and it would have been highly taboo for this Jesus of ours to be talking to this woman from Samaria. Samaria. And what is amazing is this idea that Jesus, he had to, he just had to. Have you ever just had a situation or an experience in your life where it's like, man, I just, I just had to do it? And what's amazing is it says Jesus sets out and he doesn't stop until he gets there. 
Doesn't stop until he shows up at the well at noon and here comes this woman to the well. It's as if Jesus knew there is an appointment that I cannot miss. And so he, he wears himself out in order to get there on time. Those are the type of road trips we would take growing up. My parents were cheap, so they would never pay for a hotel. So if we were ever going to visit family, you had to drive through the night. So we would get there on time for Christmas, but we would all be exhausted. We were present, but we were asleep, right? That's kind of Jesus. I mean, he stops at nothing to get there on time. And here he has this interaction with the Samaritan woman. It's amazing to me that Jesus would go out of his way for one person. Jesus would go out of his way for a shameful and despised and ostracized person. And I just wonder, do you ever go out of your way for people who are bound by shame? Do you ever go out of your way for people who have been ostracized by society? Do you ever go out of your way for people who assume they are outside the grace of our God. Jesus, he went out of his way. And my prayer is we would be a people willing and moved with compassion to go outside of our way also that we can encounter others and reach them with the love of Christ. See, I think it is possible to be active in the church but not active in the gospel. It is possible to do the church routine and really never fully, truly participate in what God is trying to accomplish in the world. And I know this creates some discomfort because we live in a fallen world and our world continues to get crazier and crazier. And it kind of makes us all a little nervous. But I do believe a church that avoids the world avoids its purpose. We are called as agents of change to live as a reflection of Christ in a fallen world. And so Jesus goes out of his way. He had to, he had to go to Samaria. And church, I would say it to you this way. You may not have to go to Samaria, but you do have to go to some area. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna stick. You have to go somewhere. And for whatever reason, this brilliant God of ours, this all-sovereign, creative, intentional, holy, righteous, and perfect God chose to place you in your context for such a time as this. Place you within that family, within that neighborhood, within that company, within that school, with that personality, with those experiences, and with those giftings for such a time as this. And my, my question is, is what would happen if you began praying, Lord, where is it that you want me to go and be a reflection of you? What are you trying to use me to accomplish in and through my context? Because here's the thing, we talk a lot about as a church, hey, God not only wants to do something you know, through you, God wants to do something in you and through you, right? That's something that we say. But I would say that it's even beyond that. You could say it this way. God not only wants to get you to something, right? We all have a destination. He also wants to get you through 
something. Hey, he had to go through Samaria. And I just wonder if there's influence that God has in mind for every single one of us that God's like, I'm trying to get you through your company. Young people, I'm trying to get you through that team that you participate on. Or maybe that school and the hallways that you walk. I'm trying to get you through your neighborhood. So the next time you show up to a block party, you show up with that in mind. God's trying to get me through this situation. Also that I can have an influence. There is this. There's this context. And what is amazing is the statement she says, who are you to interact with me? And she says, for Jews do not deal with Samaritans. What she doesn't say is Samaritans don't deal with Jews. What she is assuming is the breakdown in the relationship is on the Jewish side, not the Samaritan side. She's looking at the savior of the world and she's saying this interaction doesn't work because you wouldn't want anything to do with me. And some of you, that's the narrative that you've been sold about our God. That you think that you don't have a relationship and you could never have a relationship with our God because someone who is a poor representation of Christ told you that this God of ours would, not, would want nothing to do with someone like you. And that is a faulty way of thinking that runs against the grain of the gospel. There is not a person, no matter your walk of life, and my goodness, we can all make a list, can't we? We can all make a list of people who make us uncomfortable and no judgment. I've got a list of my own. But there's not a single person on this planet outside the reach of this grace found in this Jesus. But this is the context. And Jesus had to. And church, I'm telling you, we have to. We have to live on mission. Also, we can advance the cause of Christ. There is the context. In addition to that, there is the conversation. You ever been uncomfortable with some of Jesus' conversations? What is amazing to me is people who are nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. In fact, Jesus would say some things that if it were to come out of your mouth and out of my mouth, it would be offensive. But somehow how he said it and how he went about it earned a person's trust and their devotion. It just makes me wonder, do we articulate the gospel in a similar fashion? Look how this conversation goes on between Jesus and this woman. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now watch this statement. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. Because the fact is that you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. That's just Carlos, right? He's the next guy in your, in your deal. What you have said is quite true. I mean, what a conversation. 
I mean, that is amazing. And I think part of the challenge in our world as Christians is learning to articulate our faith in a tumultuous culture. But I do find that a lot of Christians have poor gospel grammar. We have a four-year-old, and she's kind of at that age where we're caught in this tension. She says some things incorrectly, and it's super cute. But in the back of our mind is now the thought, should we start correcting her? Like, it's cute now, but if she keeps talking like this, it's not gonna be cute when she's a teenager. It's not gonna be cute when she's an adult. At some point, she's gonna have to learn better grammar. In church, I say this with love, but some people who call themselves Christians, who have been Christians for a long time, have not had someone lovingly tell them, you have bad gospel grammar. Church, I have Facebook just like some of you have Facebook. And I get to see what folks post on their Facebook. <laughs> and my goodness, do we have some room for improvement when it comes to articulating our faith in a way that reflects an all-loving, grace-filled, merciful God, amen? It's just saying, Lord, do I have some bad gospel grammar? Is there anything that I could better articulate? Again, the gospel means what? Good news. And so I'm just telling you, if it doesn't put joy in a person's heart, there is a chance you're telling it wrong. So there is the context, and there's the conversation, and then there is the container, which is what she's worried about. He's talking about living water, and she's like, well, you don't even have a container. How are you going to even draw this water? It's funny because here she is concerned that Jesus does not have the right tools to accomplish what he's promising in her life. And some of you are assuming that our God lacks the tools to accomplish in your life what he has set out and promised to do for every single one of us. Where is your container? He goes on to say this. Check this out in the verse. Just then, his disciples came back and they, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? It's as if they later realized, man, some, one of us should have asked the question. Maybe we would have learned a bit, pretty profound lesson in that moment. Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They then went out of the town and were coming to him. So guys, get your mind around this. Here is a woman who had been ostracized by her community. Here's a woman with a promiscuous past. Here's a woman who had five husbands and is now working on her sixth. So the fact that she is at the well at noon means she was highly rejected by her community. In that day and age, the custom was never to go draw water at noon. 
It would have been the peak of the day and it would have been hot. Women would have awoken early and they would have gone to the well together. It was a, a social thing. You go with the women in the community. You do life together. You build relationships together. So someone who would choose to be going at noon was someone who didn't want to be seen by anybody. And then she has this experience with Christ. And she goes from not wanting to be seen by anybody to wanting to tell everybody. What is shifting in this woman? What is it about this woman that went from just complete shame and embarrassment to unexplainable boldness? I think to myself, what was she thinking as she walked away from this interaction? I think this woman was in search of love most of her life. Again, this is quite a bit of relationships we're talking about. Quite a bit of failed relationships. And now she just met a man who knew everything about her, yet still loved her. And I get the feeling she walked away with this in mind. I've never been loved like this. My goodness, my prayer every single week as we open the pages of scripture is somebody would bump into Jesus for the first time and somebody would be seen fully and truthfully and honestly and wholly by their heavenly father and they would walk away thinking to themselves, my goodness, I've never been loved like this. And I just promise you, it does not matter how bad you think you are. It is no match for his goodness. Your sin is no match for his grace. I mean, it's not even a close contest. Grace breaks the scales when it comes to leveling that out. And so she, she walks back into the community. And now she wants to be seen and she wants to be heard. Which is amazing. Because this woman is... Again, bound in shame, and she's embarrassed. Much of her life was her holding on to shame. And in this moment, what we find is her overwhelmed by grace. Church, this is why I tell you, stop holding on to your shame, because God is not holding out on his grace. And here's the thing. Every single one of us has the ability to manage our shame to some degree. And so some of you are walking around with a container mindset containing all the regret and all the shame and all the guilt and all the remorse and you just got it bottled up and it's creating turmoil in your life. But here's the thing. You can contain shame, but you cannot contain grace. Her whole life she had been containing shame and then she has an encounter with Jesus and she walks away, I can't even contain it. You should know, I just met a person who told me everything. He knew all of it, all my secrets. In fact, how do we even have this story? Because the disciples went away to get lunch. The only way we have this story is because she was willing to tell it. I'm telling you, the grace found in Jesus Christ is the one thing in this world you could never over-exaggerate. 
Write it down. Journal about it. Pray it through before you email me back. You cannot over-exaggerate the grace of our God. I was once having a conversation with a young lady and she was asking me like, is there delineations when it comes to sin? Hey, like are there, are there some sins that are worse than other sins? And I asked her, I said, well, which is heavier? All the rocks in the mountains or all the waters in the ocean? Which is heavier? And she's like, I have no idea. Both are heavy. I said, exactly. I don't know how to answer your question, but to say, it's all pretty heavy. And where we go wrong is by trying to trick us into making light of the things within our life that are offensive to our God, the things that are contrary to his will and his plan for our life. And it makes me think of a time I was recently working out which I know you're not seeing the evidence yet, but guys, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> Pretty soon, this shirt's getting tighter and I'm getting more confident. But I was at the gym and I was at the gym with like 300 other people. So I would do a superset, which I would do one exercise to the next and I'd rotate between three exercises. And people kept jumping in on my machines. You wanna get annoyed by that? Like you think you own the gym, nobody should jump in on your machine. So I get back on my machine not knowing someone had just used it. Someone had just adjusted the weight. So I get on thinking it was the same weight and apparently some woman had gone on and put heavier weight on it, which I'm embarrassed to admit, but <laughs> homegirl had me beat. And so I get on the exercise and I'm dying. And in my mind, I'm so frustrated because I'm assuming it was lighter than I thought it was. And I couldn't explain or get my mind around my struggle. And some of you, you've tried to convince yourself that the issues in your life are much lighter than they are. And then you go through life confused by your struggle. Unable to explain the shame and the, the weight that you sense on you when in your mind you've made it lighter. But I'm telling you, when we just lay it down before our God, there is a grace that is so liberating. So stop holding on to your shame when our God is not holding out on his grace. That's what is so amazing about this idea of, of a container because she's worried about his container. She obviously showed up with hers. But what is amazing is she has this encounter with God, and what happens? She walks away, and what does scripture tell us? She leaves the container. Because in that moment, she discovered, I'm a container. I don't need to run around trying to contain my identity in my kids' sports. I don't need to run around trying to contain my identity in my superficial relationships or my compensation. No, there are things already hardwired within me. I am a container and I can experience the goodness of God and I can understand and discover who I am fully made in his image and in his likeliness without all this additional stuff trying to prop me up. Without all of it, he still loves me fully. Are you tracking with me? This is big stuff. 
But this is why we gather as a church. My goodness, do not show up to hear me give a a lecture on what seems to be my opinions. I pray you show up hungry because one, it's, it's so much funner to cook for hungry people. But show up hungry like, hey, I believe that there's something God wants to do in my life. And I can contain and experience his goodness to a point where it'll overflow and I won't be able to contain it. I believe this is where David in Psalms 23 rounds the corner in this hallmark verse. And he says, my cup runneth over. And then what does he say? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I discovered even when I'm at my worst, he is at his best. And though there may be weeping in the evening, there's joy in the morning. My God is faithful and my cup can runneth over. So she runs back and she tells him. And while this is going on, the disciples come back to the well. And the last thing I wanna talk to you about is this concept. In scripture, we have all these concepts that we don't understand their context. So there are certain buzzwords in the church that get people really excited. And for the charismatics in the room, I could trigger you in a heartbeat with just some buzzwords. I could start talking revival and some of y'all would lose your mind. I could preach breakthrough for about 15 seconds and I could get some amen. Or I could start talking about the harvest. Scripture says the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. God has a harvest in mind for you. And you'd be like, oh my goodness, right? And some of you get all excited about it and you would love the concept, but you wouldn't understand the context. So here comes a concept, but you have to take it in this context. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, that you don't know about, which I just love how Jesus trolls his disciples. <laughs> they just ran to Chipotle, came back with his special order, and now he's like, I'm good, I don't need to eat. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Did someone beat us to it? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then check this out. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. So they show up and they're like, Jesus, here's your food. And he's like, I'm good. And they're confused. And what you find is Jesus sent them away not because he was hungry, but because he was, he was focused on this conversation. It's as if Jesus was saying, guys, I'm not here to eat. I'm here to meet. And I needed some of you to go into town so I could meet with this woman. Because haven't you ever discovered there are some people you just can't take some places? (laughs) Like that uncle of yours, like you could take them to the carnival, but you can't take them to a dinner party, right? I can take you to a backyard barbecue, but I can't take you to a business meeting. (laughs) Fellas, I have a meeting. Go into town and get something to eat. Because what I think Jesus knew at the time is where they were at in their development. They were not ready 
for the conversation he was about to have with this woman. And so Jesus says, hey, I have a pastoral meeting that you are not spiritually mature enough to handle. And church, I just wonder, would God invite you to his pastoral meetings? Or would you run the risk of putting your foot in the mouth and sending the wrong message to someone he loves just as much as he loves you? See, I think when we think of this idea of harvest, and that's what he's drawn their attention to. Say, hey, the harvest, you have this saying, it's in four months. Well, it's actually now. And for the longest time as a city kid, I did not understand the harvest until I started talking to some country folks. And they started explaining to me the harvest. And know what I discovered? In these conversations, people told me, the harvest is the hardest. Like, this is the hardest part. And some will say, hey, this is the hardest it's ever been for the, the community of faith and followers of Christ within our nation. But never, you could argue, has there ever been a greater potential harvest within our nation? You know, I recently read a study that said there are only two other nations, get, the, get your mind around this, two other nations in the entire world that have more non-Christians than America. China and India. Based on population, there are only two other nations in the entire world. Some of you still walking around talking about this being a Christian nation. This is the third largest mission field on the planet. I mean, get your mind there. I got to speak at a, a conference in Tanzania. This was an amazing experience of mine. Thousands of pastors came to be a part of this ministry conference. So I got to speak at the event, and my goodness, it was life-altering. And after the, the conference, they said, hey, we would love for you to spend some time with our missionaries. I said, okay, well, help me understand that because I'm not a missionary. You know, I'm a pastor of a local church, so I've never gone on the mission field in the traditional sense. And he started laughing. He said, oh, well, you have built a thriving church in America, right? And I said, yeah. Like, okay, well, all of our missionaries are going to America. And he said, listen, you may not realize it, but the world around you now sees your nation as one of the biggest missions fields in the world. Guys, we are in harvest season. And at some point, we can just stop complaining about culture and all the bizarre things that we see and all the offensive things that come against the community of faith. Or we can rise up in some boldness, declaring the goodness of our God and living in a reflection of Jesus Christ that spurs people on in curiosity. This God is good. This God is amazing. And who cares if people don't like what we believe? You stand firm in your faith. Recently I had an individual tell me, I just can't get on board with all that Jesus garbage. I said, well, okay, well you should know that my Jesus garbage has kept me from experiencing a lot of your garbage. 
My Jesus garbage has kept me from experiencing some of your marriage garbage, some of your mental and emotional garbage, some of your financial and identity garbage. My garbage has kept me from your garbage. And suddenly this cat wanted to go dumpster diving in my life because he wanted to know more. And so Jesus says, look, lift your eyes because the harvest is now. Church, lift your eyes. Do away with the pessimism. Do away with the victim mindset. Lift your eyes. The harvest is now. And when the disciples lifted their eyes, what did they see? A crowd of defiled Samaritan people rushing their way. And Jesus says, that's the harvest. So the next time you're ready to pass judgment on our culture, I pray you hear the whisper of our Savior, it's harvest season. And watch how this ends. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed him because of the woman's testimony. Wait a second, there's a God who could love a person like this? Well, if this God could love a person like this, maybe he could love a person like me. This is why you have to tell your testimony. And so he told them me everything I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Guys, understand this. Jesus going to Galilee, what did it say? He had to go through Samaria. And most people read it and they think he's in a hurry to get to Galilee. But what we find is he was in a hurry to get to Samaria. And the moment he shows up, he decides to stay for a couple more days. And here's, please, Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're not, you're off the hook. This is gonna be fun for you because you get to peer into group therapy for the rest of us. But if you are a follower of Christ, you have to understand this about Jesus. Jesus wasn't looking to weigh in. Jesus was looking for a way in. Jesus just wasn't looking to go around and project his opinion and then move on. Wasn't trying to reduce his influence to a simple social media post and then move on. No, Jesus wasn't looking to weigh in. He was looking for a way in into the hearts of men and women who deeply need the goodness of our God. And what would happen if we started looking for a way in and we started allowing God to break our heart for the things that break his heart and we could see his love and his adoration and his commitment to reach all people with the goodness of Jesus Christ. We have to look for a way in. So church, please, please, don't pry your way in. Pray your way in. You may not have to go to Samaria, but every single one of us has to go. You have to. If you're a follower of Christ, you have to. You have to go to some area. And don't just look to weigh in. Please be a good reflection of Jesus and look for a way in. Amen? At this time, I'm going to pass it back to our campuses.
Well, church, would you stand to your feet as we close in prayer? Hey, do me a favor. We always promote bringing a friend to church when it's like a holiday. Hey, Easter's coming, invite a friend. Hey, Christmas is coming, invite a friend. Guys, we should have so many holy days, there's not enough holidays. Don't wait for the next holiday. Next week could be a holy day. You bring a friend to church and let's see how many people we can reach with the goodness of God, amen? Dear Holy Father, God, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your grace. God, thank you for loving all of us as if there was only one of us. Thank you for going out of your way to change our lives. And we stand here in awe because the one who knows us the best loves us the most. And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.